The day is August 12th, 1942, and you have been assigned to a 25-man patrol on a mission to pick up Japanese deserters on the island of Guadalcanal in order to gather intelligence that would be needed to assess Japanese troop strength on the island. Your Marine Regiment has landed just five days before and been able to capture the airfield that the Japanese had been building. Up to this point, with the arrival of the Marines being a total surprise, there had been little resistance. Your CO is Lieutenant Colonel Frank Brian Getke, a 47-year-old Marine Corps veteran and senior officer for D2 intelligence who had served in the Ardennes Offensive in World War I and knew his way around. Also attached to the patrol was translator Ralph T. Corey, who in civilian life had held a government job as a Japanese translator. There was Lieutenant Commander Malcolm Pratt, regimental surgeon, and other intelligence scouts and infantry. You are the platoon sergeant. It's 9 p.m. and you're with your platoon supporting this group of intelligence officers cruising in a tank lighter craft at 9 p.m. at night, seeking a landing west of Point Cruz on the north shore of the 90-mile-long tropical island called Guadalcanal. The Japanese, you have been told, are amassed near the shoreline west of the Matanikau estuary, which your patrol is assigned to enter, traveling upstream for the purpose of picking up surrendering Japanese. A captured Japanese naval warrant officer had informed intelligence that there were many men who would surrender if given a chance. In addition to this, some of the Korean laborers forced into service by the Japanese had made it through the lines to surrender, providing additional information on defenses. Commander Getke was hoping they could avoid losses on Guadalcanal if they could persuade the Japanese to surrender, a critical part of this mission. There was no moon tonight only the darkness and the dim form of the jungle that began where the thin strip of sand marking the beach ended. The craft suddenly ran aground on a sandbar that had been formed by the delta of the Matanegu River as it poured into the Pacific, and the coxswain gunned the engines in reverse, but stopped, realizing it was making too much noise, noise that might draw more attention than they wanted. You and two Marines jump out and push and rock the boat free. As you move nearer to shore, you're able to make out a 200-foot ridge, and you're thinking that any spotter positioned there would have seen your craft approaching by now. You are sitting ducks. As it turned out, you were right. The Japanese shore patrol on Bayaya Ridge had seen the craft, and infantrymen and weapons were already getting positioned to take you out. As the craft lands, Commander Getke orders a V-shaped defensive perimeter established on the beach then takes two men, First Sergeant Custer and Captain Ringer, with him to scout the jungle. The sounds of the jungle seem to surround you like a blanket. After only a few minutes, shots ring out, and Ringer and Custer come running back out of the trees. Getke has been killed, shot in the head. The men are badly shaken. You immediately order two men from your platoon to accompany you and sprint for the jungle to confirm that Getke had been shot and retrieve his insignia and watch so the Japanese can't identify him as an officer. Finding Getke dead, you pocket his effects and begin to make it back to the high water point on the beach. 
Now stealing through the jungle, a Japanese soldier covered in jungle palm leaves suddenly jumps out only two feet away from you. And thinking he might be a friendly, you blurt out, what's the password? But his only answer is to bayonet you in the arm and leg with two quick jabs. Your response in less than a second is to grab his rifle and you both struggle for possession until you're able to jerk it away and bayonet him with it in the chest. He falls back gasping and knowing with certainty that he is dying, you and your two comrades continue on. Your 45 caliber sidearm now in hand. Another Japanese soldier attacks silently in the same manner and you shoot him with your 45. You approach the beach and call out to the group hunkered down beneath their hastily dug sand trenches, letting them know you're coming in. On the beach, Captain Ringer had established a left and right protective flank and has ordered Sergeant Art to fire three sets of tracer shots westward in the direction of Kokum, your base, in hopes that they could draw reinforcements as the Japanese soldiers begin to fire steadily on your position. You are now speaking with Captain Ringer confirming the loss of Getke, and he has just asked you to send one of your men to get reinforcements. You suggest sending Sergeant Monk Art, and within minutes, Art has slipped into the water, his 45 strapped to the top of his helmet, and he's swimming, all of you hope, for reinforcements. A shot rings out, and Art returns fire, then keeps swimming, carrying your hopes for survival with him. Out of sight of you now, Arndt is getting torn up by sharp coral and buffeted by the waves, and it will take him hours to reach your lines. More hours than you will have here alive. At your position, the Japanese are increasing their pressure, picking off your men one by one. Sergeant Custer is critically wounded. Dr. Pratt, caring for him, is also shot once, then twice, in the back, and is dying. The shots are coming from the jungle, and there was little chance that your shots were having any effect on them. Some marines in your defensive perimeter have found cover behind the roots of the scattered mangrove trees and coconut palms that dot the beach. You want to return fire and keep looking for muzzle flashes, but there are none. Corporal Spaulding is moving up the line of defenders and reporting back to Captain Ringer on casualties, and Ringer suddenly orders him to swim for help, which he does peeling off his boots and running toward the surf. The sniping goes on for nine more helpless hours, and by dawn, the only men of the patrol still able to fight are you, Platoon Sergeant Caltrider, and Captain Ringer. The three of you agree that you'll have to get off this beach if you'll have any chance of making it out of here alive, and agree to try to make it to the cover of the jungle about 30 yards away. You rise from your position and make a dash for a grove of coconut trees, and as you do so, shots ring out, and Ringer, and then Rider are killed. Now, it's only you. To stay here means certain death. You peel off your boondockers and sprint for the water, hearing the zing and feeling the air of bullets as they pass you, expecting one in the back any second. But you reach the surf, and then dive under, swimming frantically, hearing bullets pang as they hit the water around you. Your feet are pushing off the sharp coral below you, and now they're being torn like wet paper 
and no doubt bleeding. And then you think of the sharks. After less than a minute, you surface and look quickly back at the beach. The Japanese are swarming the beach now, firing into the bodies of the wounded. You see the flash of their bayonets and hear the screams of the men you had just fought with. And you know for certain that the Japanese are taking no prisoners. You start swimming west up the beach toward Kukum and safety. Hours later, exhausted and unable to speak clearly, you reach the marine perimeter. And as soon as you have recovered enough to speak, you inform Lieutenant Colonel William Maxwell, who immediately passes it up the line to Major General Vandergriff. The loss of your patrol is a huge setback at the time, but within days, it will pale as tens of thousands of Japanese soldiers are landed on this island to fight to their deaths to regain the airstrip they had lost, launching the first major land battle in the Pacific Theater, one which would claim over 26,000 lives within a matter of weeks. 7,100 of them American Marines. It was to be the battle that would begin the downfall of the mighty Imperial Japanese Army, an army that had never known defeat until Guadalcanal, but was to learn it very quickly. Welcome to Guadalcanal, Hell in the Pacific. In the process of hosting this podcast and sharing history with you, I am constantly humbled by how much I do not know. The story of the Battle of Guadalcanal is a perfect example. I had thought it was only a sea battle, that misunderstanding coming from the word canal, which is obviously a water passageway. But it was much more a grueling, months-long battle on a rugged jungle island about the same size and length as New York's Long Island, the longest and largest island in the U.S., which extends about 120 miles from its westernmost point near New York City to its easternmost forked tip at Montauk and Orient Points. The Battle of Guadalcanal was fought between 7th of August, 1942 and February 9, 1943, on and around the island of Guadalcanal in the Pacific Theater of World War II. It was the first major offensive by Allied forces against the Empire of Japan. The fighting was intense on the land, in the air, and on the sea. On August 7, 1942, Allied forces, predominantly United States Marines, landed on the islands of Guadalcanal, Tulagi, and Florida Islands in the southern Solomon Islands with the objective of denying their use by the Japanese to threaten Allied supply and communication routes between the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand. The Allies overwhelmed the outnumbered Japanese defenders who had occupied the island since May of 1942 and captured Tulagi and Florida, as well as a critically important airfield that was under construction on Guadalcanal. Powerful American and Australian naval forces supported the marine landings. Surprised by the Allied offensive at Guadalcanal, the Japanese fought back initially by sea and air with everything they had to retake Guadalcanal and the strategically important airfield. The naval ships, American and Australian, that were delivering men 
and needed supplies to the 1st Marine Division, newly landed at Guadalcanal, came under attack just days after their landing, and many were destroyed by attacking Japanese bombers and ships, causing the Navy to pull out, leaving the 11,000 Marines undersupplied and vulnerable to attack. The Navy continues to fight and provide support on the sea and in the air throughout this campaign, but it is the story of the Marines at Guadalcanal that this episode deals with for the main part. About a month after we were there or less, we had a Battle of Teneru. That was a little river that defended a southern exposure to the airfield. And we, our job was to defend the airfield against attack. And we had the first defensive uh, operation, it's called the Battle of the Teneru. And the, that was the first division. It was what you call C-111. That means C Company, 1st Battalion, 1st Regiment, 1st Division. And, and we were the first defenders of the battlefield of the uh, Guadalcanal airfield at right. night battle. It came in about, uh, I'd say, a week after we were there. The Japanese, with the U.S. and Australian ships now gone, could now land men and materials to Guadalcanal, and they did so at night, beginning August 17th, in an effort to build up their fighting forces and wipe the Americans who they considered easily beatable, off the island. Time and time again throughout World War II, we will see the Japanese inability to either gather or accept intelligence as a critical flaw in their armor. The belief that America was a weak culture that would fold at the first sign of trouble had pervaded the best military minds in Japan, and that was one of the faults that would do them the most harm. They had prevailed against China since they invaded it in 1937, and it had literally gone to their heads. Their pride and culture prevented them from ever considering a surrender when they should have in 1944, and it was their cultural pride and their emperor who remained blind and kept his people blind to the fact that they had been beaten miserably by the spring of 1945. They would never surrender, and that led to the eventual destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of that year. Had it not been for the atom bomb, the Emperor Hirohito would have let the entire Japanese population fight literally to extinction, believing in their invincibility. I wonder if that is being taught in schools today. Here at Guadalcanal in 1942, Americans were about to receive their first trial by fire from the Japanese army, and the result would leave the overconfident Japanese reeling. Along with the Battle of Midway, it has been called by many historians, correctly I believe, as the turning point in the soldiers' war against Japan, this time showing the Japanese army, which considered itself invincible up to this point, that it could be beaten, and beaten badly. With this two-part audio podcast, we honor the men who fought at Guadalcanal 75 years ago, just one average lifetime ago, and do our best to tell their story. When those who could return from the war did, they often didn't talk about it, and when they did, the subject would quickly stray from scenes of the battlefield to memories of incidents that seemed to us totally unrelated. Mostly because the memories of death and human destruction, which war is, are best left in that part of the brain that exists in the furthest passageways from the conscious. They do not consider themselves heroes in most cases. To them, the heroes are those who gave up their futures and never returned. 
On Guadalcanal, the Marines were originally issued one-piece tan suits, which stood out badly against the jungle. And as soon as they could, they exchanged these for two-piece camouflage twill, customizing a rear flap to account for the constant bounce of malarial-induced runs, which they called the Tulagi Trots. Ninety percent of the soldiers at Guadalcanal contracted malaria. And if the malaria didn't slow you down, there was the dengue fever, then poisonous snakes, landmines, and booby traps to finish the job. Most Marines were issued a bolt-action 303 Springfield with a bayonet, the Springfield carrying a magazine containing five 30-06 caliber rounds. In addition to this, they carried a knife, extra clips, a helmet, and a canteen, which was critical to their survival. One, because fresh water was very difficult to find. The only fresh water to be found was available in the rivers, the other side of which was usually controlled by the enemy, making those trips for water very dangerous indeed. And two, with dehydration caused by having the runs combined with the heat, heat stroke was a deadly and constant threat. One Marine corpsman wrote that he came to Guadalcanal weighing 150 and left four months later weighing 110, a 30% loss in body mass. It was hard to be sharp every second and engage in hand-to-hand combat with your body suffering dehydration. The poorly equipped Japanese soldiers on Guadalcanal suffered huge casualties through starvation, dehydration, and malaria. Over half of their total losses during that campaign were not battle-inflicted. American Marines wore no bulletproof protection and often were pictured fighting shirtless, often helmetless. They had no night vision as they do today and the Japanese usually attacked at night. Their boots, called boondockers, were constantly waterlogged from the terrain, and foot rot was common. Although the August landing on the island of Guadalcanal was met with almost no resistance, the Marines had paid dearly for control of the nearby islands of Tulagi, Gavuto, and Tanambogo, losing nearly 20% of their attacking forces to the well-fortified Japanese. On August 18th, a regiment led by Japanese Colonel Ichiki and a special naval landing force were assigned the task of defeating the Marines. Ichiki had been ordered to wait for more troops to support him, but his view on the Marines, and a view then shared by many Japanese officers, was that his fighting men were more than a match for the Marines. He decided to attack with just what he had on August 21st. The Battle of the Tenaru, sometimes called the Battle of Ilu River or the Battle of Alligator Creek, was the first major Japanese land offensive in the battle for Guadalcanal. In the battle, U.S. Marines, under the overall command of U.S. Major General Alexander Vandegrift, repulsed an assault by the first element of the Ichiki Regiment. The Marines were defending a strategic area which will be referred to here numerous times as the Lunga Perimeter, an American-drawn line of defense which guarded Henderson Field, which was captured by the Allies in the landings on Guadalcanal, as we have previously mentioned, on August 7th, Ichiki's unit was sent to Guadalcanal in response to the Allied landings with the mission of recapturing the airfield and driving the Allied forces off the island. Underestimating the strength of Allied forces on Guadalcanal, which at that time numbered about 11,000 personnel, Ichiki's unit conducted a nighttime frontal assault on Marine positions at Alligator Creek on the east side of the Lunga perimeter. You can picture Guadalcanal Island in your mind as about 90 miles long, by about 30 miles wide, the center being very mountainous. The island runs northwest to southeast, and many rivers, most actually being wide creeks, run from the mountainous center 
to the north and east beaches. The entire island is jungle and rivers. The southern side of the island offers almost no ports of entry and has no strategic value, so all the action we will see happens on the northern coast. Henderson Airfield is located about 2,500 yards in from the north and west point of the island, surrounded by jungle with a long coral ridge to the south. The Lunga River passes near the airfield and travels northwest to its delta at the main port for the Marines called Kokum, near Lunga Point. This is located on the north shore, a few miles east of the westernmost point, called Point Esperance, which the Japanese control. Traveling east and southeast from Kokum and Lunga Point along the beach, every few hundred yards you will pass a river emptying into the sea, beginning with the Matanakau, then the Lunga, then the Tanaru, also called the Alligator River. It was at the Matanakau that the intelligence group was ambushed at the beginning of this episode. It is at the Alligator River, just east of the Matanakau, that the first major battle will take place. The Battle of the Teneru, also called the Battle of the Alligator River, was the first of three separate major land offensives by the Japanese in the Guadalcanal Campaign. Anticipating Ichiki's attack from the east, the U.S. Marine forces under the direction of General Vandegrift prepared their defenses on the east side of the Lunga perimeter. Several official U.S. military histories identify the location of the eastern defenses of the Lunga perimeter as emplaced on the Teneru River, which is the name commonly used to describe this first battle of Guadalcanal, even though the Teneru Creek was located further east. Alligator Creek was a tidal lagoon separated from the ocean by a sandbar varying from 25 to 50 feet in width and about 98 feet long, and it contained crocodiles, not alligators. Along the west side of Alligator Creek, Colonel Clifton B. Cates, commander of the 1st Marine Regiment, deployed his 1st and 2nd Battalions. To help further defend the Alligator Creek sandbar, Cates deployed 100 men from the 1st Special Weapons Battalion with two 37mm anti-tank guns equipped with canister shot. You know the Japanese are coming, and fear sets in. Your mouth is dry, and your heart is racing, and you wonder how you're going to perform. But when they come, fixed bayonets, dynamite throwing, grenades throwing, your training sets in and you do your thing. And that fear is gone. And uh, that's, that's the way I felt about it. A long time I never said anything about it. Marine Divisional Artillery, consisting of both 75mm and 105mm guns, pre-targeted locations on the east side and sandbar areas of Alligator Creek, and forward artillery observers emplaced themselves in the forward Marine positions. The Marines worked all day on August 20th to prepare the defenses as much as possible before nightfall. Just after midnight on August 21st, Ichiki's main body of troops arrived at the east bank of Alligator Creek and were surprised to encounter the Marine positions, not having expected to find U.S. forces located that distance from the airfield. Nearby U.S. Marine listening posts heard clanking sounds, human voices, and other noises before withdrawing to the west bank of the creek. At 1.30 a.m., Ichiki's force opened fire with machine guns and mortars on the Marine positions on the west bank of the creek, and a first wave of about 100 Imperial soldiers charged across the sandbar toward the Marines. Marine machine gun fire and canister rounds from the 37mm cannon killed most of the Japanese soldiers as they crossed the sandbar. 
a few of the Japanese soldiers reached the Marine positions, engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the defenders, and captured a few of the Marine frontline emplacements. Also, Japanese machine gun and rifle fire from the east side of the creek killed several of the Marine machine gunners. The beach defenses had been set up in a V pattern, and three men from Company H, armed with 30 caliber machine guns, were to receive the brunt of the attack head-on. These were Sergeant Al Schmidt from Philadelphia, Corporal Leroy Diamond, and PFC John Rivers. They were manning a well-dug sandbag and log emplacement camouflaged with palm fronds and jungle greenery. The position was on the west bank of the creek, which was 50 yards wide at that point. Across the river from their nest, Schmidt saw a dark, bobbing mass at the edge of the water. It looked like a herd of cattle coming down to drink, he remembered. Fifty Japanese crossed the river yelling, Marine, tonight you die, and Banzai, firing their rifles as they came. John Rivers opened up on them, and the mass broke up. Screams of rage and pain came from the other side as Japanese concentrated everything they had on Schmidt's position and on a second machine gun position 150 yards downstream. Bullets whined past the Marines' heads, throwing mud and wood chips around them. Schmidt's heart pounded rapidly. The machine gun on their right stopped firing, put out of action. Then a dozen bullets tore into Rivers' face, killing him instantly. His finger froze on the trigger, sending 200 rounds into the darkness above. Cold rage rising in him, Schmidt shoved Rivers' body out of the way and took over the gun. Corporal Diamond got in position to load it. Every time Schmidt raked the attacking Japanese, he heard them yelling as bullets ripped into them. He heard one particular Japanese officer screeching and barking commands at the others. He had a nasty, shrill voice that stood out over the others, Schmidt said. He fired a final burst at the voice, but failed to silence it. That voice would haunt him for years. Diamond was then hit in the arm, the bullet knocking him partially across Schmidt's feet. He could not load anymore, but while Schmidt fired the gun, Diamond stood beside him, spotting targets. Schmidt would fire across the river to the left, feel Diamond hitting him hard on the arm and pointing to the right, swing the gun, and then hear the Japanese yelling as the bullets hit them. Schmidt, blinded, now was both loading and firing the machine gun. When he got close to the end of a 300-round belt of ammunition, Diamond would punch his arm. Schmidt would fire a burst, rip open the magazine, insert a new belt, and resume firing. At one point, a Japanese soldier put a string of bullets through the 30 caliber's water jacket. Water spurted over Schmidt's lap and chest. The gun crackled and overheated, but it didn't jam. Schmidt continued loading and firing the machine gun for more than four hours, with and without help. Somehow, a Japanese soldier got through a body-choked stream and got close enough to throw a hand grenade into Schmidt's position. There was a blinding flash and explosion, Schmidt recalled. My helmet was knocked off. Something struck me in the face. When he put his hand up, all he felt was blood and raw flesh. Then he felt pain in his left shoulder, arm, and hand. He could see nothing. He collapsed in his back in the nest. They got me in the eyes, he muttered to Diamond, who lay beside him. The Japanese were still pouring bullets into the machine gun position. Schmidt reached around to his holster and took out his 45. Diamond heard him fussing with it and yelled, Don't do it, Schmitty. Don't shoot yourself. Hell, don't worry about that, Schmidt said. I'm going to get the first Jap that tries to come in here. But you can't see, Diamond reminded him. Just tell me which way he's coming from and I'll get him, Schmidt replied. Both men were helpless in the hole and it was getting light. 
A sniper in a tree across the river was firing almost straight down at them. The only thing protecting them was the shelf where the machine gun stood, about two feet in diameter. Although his sight had not come back, Schmidt took his position between the spread rear tripod legs of the machine gun, squeezed the trigger, and, with Diamond yelling directions in his ear, resumed firing at the Japanese across the river. Private Whitey Jacobs, one of the squad's members, braved the continuous Japanese gunfire, jumped into the nest, and staunched Schmidt's and Diamond's wounds. The next thing Schmidt knew, they were taking him out on a blanket. He had the 45 automatic in his hand. Hearing his lieutenant's voice, Schmidt held out the gun. I guess I won't need this anymore, sir, he said. Then Schmidt passed out. All night the Japanese continued their assaults, but the Marines' anti-tank guns, machine guns, and artillery cut Ichiki's men down. At dawn, when it was clear the position would hold, Vandergriff sent a reserve battalion across the river to attack the Japanese from their flank and rear. Of the 800 Japanese who attacked across the Ilu on August 21st, only 14 wounded were picked up, and one was captured unhurt. The rest were killed. Ichiki burned his regimental colors and committed suicide. There were some Japs who have landed, and we were well aware of them up on the beach. They only had enough barbed wire to put one strangle strand of wire up, and they were going to do that after dark so that uh, the Japanese were probably reconnoitering the other side of the bank. As I recall, there was uh, maybe uh, one or two shots or something like that, and sort of a quiet period and a couple of more. But you knew they were over there, and there was a lot of uh, uh, yelling and screaming and swearing against each other. And they got ribbed up, I guess, from this, and then they'd scream and call Banzai and come pouring over. So we had a 37-millimeter cannon. We uh, had that set up on the point near the sand and uh, where they would come back over the sandbar. And incidentally, we, we were firing grape shot and they had given us 55 rounds to last for the night, and only you could fire it on it, and they said when you had the, the uh, gift of an opportunity, meaning when a flare went off and you could see the Japanese, you could fire it, but you can't just keep firing, we'd be out of ammunition a half hour. So every once in a while when a flare went off and you could see Japanese, we would fire this, this 37 millimeter cannon with a grape shot, and uh, you could see them, and when you fired it, all of a sudden, it was all clear. You couldn't see any Japanese, and uh, it wiped them out. The Japanese, when they came across, they came across almost, uh, you, you might say, in a, a group of just crazy uh, banzai charge, screaming and yelling, and, and uh, all the machine guns, what have you, opened up on the Tenaru River. So we had a lot of firepower of crisscrossing, and the Japanese, uh, very few of them even broke through. And uh, near our gun, uh, some of them got as close as 15 or 20 feet away, but the, the riflemen and the machine gunners finished them off before they could take over that cannon because they knew that nothing was going to get across. And it was a pretty lively action. And um, it, it, it just was so constant, and it started uh, late at night, some was around midnight or one o'clock or something like that. 
and went on till daylight in the morning. And uh, we looked at the beach in the morning and where our gun was pointed, you could see uh, Japanese bodies had been half buried by the ocean current in the sand. We were the first couple of people to walk down and lure it. So we just walked away and, and uh, there was no cheering or anything like that following the battle. People felt pretty happy that we uh, won it, but uh, you could look out there and see all these bodies and uh, it makes you think uh, a little bit how, uh, you know, how short life can be. The number of bodies counted within range of Al Schmidt's machine gun ran into the hundreds. The other Marines who were there that night credited him with killing at least 200 Japanese attackers. Schmidt was put on a hospital ship and sent back to the United States. He was admitted to the Naval Hospital at San Diego, California on October 20, 1943, where he endured many operations to remove shell fragments from his face and eyes. His recovery was helped by the care and understanding of Virginia Pfeiffer, a Red Cross worker in the hospital, who wrote a four-page letter to Schmidt's wife explaining his wounds. Today he told me he might as well let you know, she wrote. He has lost one eye and the other is seriously damaged. The doctors will not know for several months whether he will have any sight in his one remaining eye. Virginia encouraged Ruth to keep writing to Schmidt. On February 18, 1943, Schmidt received the Navy Cross for extraordinary heroism and outstanding courage. He went to Washington, D.C. and was commended by President Franklin D. Roosevelt and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The three men's actions were included in the last action scene of War in the Pacific, the Spielberg-Tom Hanks production, which I think now is on Amazon Prime. It's a 10-episode saga. In spite of the heavy losses his forces suffered, Ichiki's troops remained in place on the east bank of the creek, either unable or unwilling to withdraw. At daybreak on August 21st, the commanders of the U.S. Marine units facing Ichiki's troops conferred on how best to proceed, and they decided to counterattack. The 1st Battalion, 1st Marine Regiment under Lieutenant Colonel Leonard B. Creswell, crossed Alligator Creek upstream from the battle area, enveloped Ichiki's troops from the south and the east, cutting off any avenue for retreat, and began to compress Ichiki's troops into a small area leading to a coconut grove on the east bank of the creek. Aircraft from Henderson Field strafed Japanese soldiers that attempted to escape down the beach, and later in the afternoon, five Marine M3 Stewart tanks attacked across the sandbar into the coconut grove. The tanks swept the coconut grove with machine gun and canister cannon fire, as well as rolling over the bodies, both alive and dead, of any Japanese soldiers unable or unwilling to get out of the way. By 1700, on August 21st, Japanese resistance had ended. Colonel Ichiki was either killed during the final stages of the battle or committed ritual suicide, seppuku, shortly thereafter, depending on which account you study. As curious Marines began to walk around looking at the battlefield, some wounded Japanese troops shot at them, killing or wounding several Marines. Thereafter, Marines shot and or bayoneted any Japanese soldier laying on the ground that moved. About 30 of the Japanese troops escaped to rejoin their regiment's rear echelon at Taivu Point. For the U.S. and its allies, the victory in the Tenaru battle was psychologically significant in that Allied soldiers, after a series of defeats to Japanese army units throughout the Pacific and East Asia, now knew that they could defeat the Imperial armies in a land battle. The battle also set another precedent that would continue throughout the war in the Pacific, 
which was the reluctance of defeated Japanese soldiers to surrender, and their efforts to continue killing Allied soldiers, even as the Japanese soldiers lay dying on the battlefield. On this subject, Vandergrift remarked, I have never heard or read of this kind of fighting. These people refuse to surrender. The wounded wait until men come up to examine them, and then blow themselves up and the other fellow to pieces with a hand grenade. Robert Leckie, a Guadalcanal veteran, recalls the aftermath of the battle in his book, Helmet for My Pillow. Our regiment had killed something like 900 of them, mostly in clusters or heaps before the gun pits commanding Sandspit, as though they had not died singly but in groups. Moving among them were the souvenir hunters, picking their way delicately as though fearful of booby traps, while stripping the bodies of their possessions. The battle was also psychologically significant in that imperial soldiers believed up to this moment in their own invincibility and superior spirit, and this belief was fast fading. By August 25th, most of Ichiki's survivors reached Taivu Point and radioed Rabul to tell the 17th Army headquarters that Ichiki's detachment had been almost annihilated at a point short of the airfield. Reacting with disbelief to the news, Japanese Army headquarters officers proceeded with plans to deliver additional troops to Guadalcanal to reattempt to capture Henderson Field. The next major Japanese attack on the Lunga perimeter occurred at the Battle of Edson's Ridge about three weeks later, this time employing a much larger force than had been employed in the Teneru battle. This larger force was the Japanese 35th Brigade. The Americans had one major advantage over the Japanese. The Japanese had to be transported by sea, and the ships transporting these men were open to attack from the American planes based now at Henderson. To get around this problem, the Japanese moved their men at night via fast-moving destroyers, in so-called rat runs. By doing this, the Japanese could all but escape American fire, and they succeeded in landing a large quantity of men to the east and west of the American position at Henderson. The American position at Henderson Field meant that one side of their defense perimeter was bound by the sea. Vandergrift concluded that the only way the Japanese could attack his position was from the south of the island. Major Edson believed it would come at a high ridge which would in history become named Edson's Ridge. The attack began on September 12th. Japanese bombers attacked U.S. positions to the south of the airfield, and as night fell, Japanese destroyers and a cruiser shelled the same positions. At least for Vandergrift, it confirmed that an attack would come from the south. We got in on the 18th of September, 1942, and uh, from the day we went in there, we knew we were sitting on a hot spot. On that night of October the uh, 24th and 25th, they broke our lines twice. They hit Sector 3 along the area that night with about 7,000-plus people. And we, the area they hit, we had about 700 effectives. When they came out, there was 2,000 hit the line. Every last one of them was hollering, bonsai, bonsai. From the time the first Japanese attack, they were loading belts as hard as they could all night long. That was a mean defense, and it was tremendously hard to break. They poured men in there like you would not believe. They piled up so high, sometimes the machine gun fire wasn't effective. In lulls, the crew had to go out and scatter them some so the machine gun fire would be effective. And when they broke off and backed in the woods, they left 3,500 dead in front of our lines. I always skipped it when I was talking to groups. 
But uh, the other night I decided I'd just tell it like it was the way I felt about it. In the days leading up to the battle, Vandegrift continued to direct efforts to strengthen and improve the defenses of the Lunga perimeter. Between August 21st and September 3rd, he relocated three Marine battalions, including the 1st Raider Battalion, under U.S. Lieutenant Colonel Merritt A. Edson, which was called Edson's Raiders, and the 1st Parachute Battalion from Tulagi and Gavutu to Guadalcanal. These units, which had seen heavy action on Tulagi and Florida Islands, added about 1,500 troops to Vandegrift's original 11,000 men defending Henderson Field. The 1st Parachute Battalion, which had suffered heavy casualties in the Battle of Tulagi and Gavutu Tanambogo in August, was placed under Edson's command. Edson's Marines, called the Raiders, retired after fighting for over a month already in the Guadalcanal campaign, and some of their companies had been reduced to the size of platoons. But the men knew that if they did not successfully repel an enemy attack and the Japanese occupied the airstrip, the battle for Guadalcanal was over. Everyone in the ranks, down to the lowest private, now knew that the Japanese were to our front preparing for an attack, wrote Abel Company Raider Frank Guidon, as quoted in the George Smith book titled, The Do or Die Men. If they broke through, the 1st Marine Division would be scattered throughout the jungle, where we would end up fighting as guerrillas and eating coconuts to survive. Edson had used the difficult terrain to his best advantage. If he had situated his Marines on the ridge alone, his flanks would have been exposed to a Japanese attack. If he had opted to dig in at the front of the ridge, his lines would have been even more untenable. The enemy would have certainly probed until finding the weakest point and easily breached the perimeter. Wasting no time, the order was passed to dig in. The all-too-familiar sounds of machetes and entrenching tools permeated the air as infantrymen readied their positions. Foxholes were dug under the glare of a broiling sun, recalled Bidon. Barbed wire for double-apron obstacles was brought in. Patrols went deeper into the jungle to the south. One raider, busy with his entrenching tool, turned to me and yelled, Rest area, my ass! Below just a few inches of dirt was coral rock. Digging in was not going to be easy, and they didn't have much time. Colonel Thomas ordered the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, to take up positions in reserve between the ridge and the airfield. Forward observers working with Edson registered the howitzers of Don Pedro de Valle's 11th Marine Artillery. To the west of the Lunga River, the Marines of the 1st Pioneer and 1st Amphibious Tractor Battalions now established a defensive line. To the east was nothing but a natural barrier, a mile of thick, green jungle. As the raiders and parachutists were digging in, the Japanese were moving in their direction. Major General Kiyotaki Kawaguchi's reinforced regiment, designated the Kawaguchi Detachment, was slowly inching its way toward the ridge. Kawaguchi was a formidable leader and an excellent officer. He had a muscular build, a stern countenance, and sported a long, drooping mustache. His detachment centered around the 124th Infantry Regiment. Many of these men had toiled for long hours in Japan's coal mines and were in excellent physical condition. The regiment had attached machine gun companies, artillery, transportation, and anti-tank sections. In all, the detachment totaled nearly 4,000 men. On the morning of September 8th, as the Japanese forces were preparing to march on Henderson Field, Kawaguchi heard the distinct rumblings of gunfire emanating from Taivu Point. Learning later it was a raid on Tasimboko, 
he toyed with the idea of rushing there to crush the Americans. As one enemy officer wrote in his diary, it is maddening to be the recipients of these daring and insulting attacks. Unfortunately, Kawaguchi's scheme to assault Henderson Field was faulty. First, as a result of the Tassimboko raid, the Marines knew the enemy was coming, even if they did not positively know from which direction the Japanese would strike. Edson was gambling on the ridge line as their best avenue of attack. Second, the U.S. Navy was successful in preempting some of the nightly supply runs by the Tokyo Express, as it was called by the troops. Enemy ships were destroyed or had to veer off course to escape the American vessels that were dogging them. In fact, this persistence paid off when one of Kawaguchi's battalions had to disembark west of the raider parachute perimeter, delaying the attack. Lastly, all the units had to make their way through tough jungle terrain to reach the Marines' lines. Units attempting to negotiate their way through the dense growth had failed to reach their jump-off points to commence their assault on the 12th, as Kawaguchi had planned. Nonetheless, Kawaguchi set his plan in motion. One group, about 1,500 men, would move against the Marines along the Elu and hit their lines. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at the remaining three, totaling approximately 2,500, would move down the ridge itself and punch a hole through the perimeter and then swarm the airfield. The stage was set. The battle for the ridge was about to commence. This clash between two battle-hardened armies would decide the fate of the Americans on Guadalcanal. On the morning of September 11th, Platoon Sergeant Joe Bunton of Company A was instructed to lead a 25-man patrol into the jungle area, which ran parallel to the Lunga River. His orders were to determine the size and location of the Japanese force moving in their direction. The patrol edged its way through the jungle quietly. Just before noon, the unmistakable sounds of Japanese voices could be heard. As Bunton and his scouts were sizing up the situation, the enemy opened fire. A hot firefight ensued with the sounds of bullets hissing through the humid tropical air. As the gunfire momentarily subsided, the infantrymen waited and remained alert for the enemy's next move. Suddenly, the Leathernecks heard the sound of Japanese twin-engine Mitsubishi G4M Betty bombers. The enemy formation now appeared to be almost overhead, recalled Frank Guidon. That's when the wham, wham of the first bombs could be heard directly ahead of us. The bombs continued exploding as they walked them to our location, and then passed us to our positions on the ridge. One exploded near myself and my BAR man, PFC Sylvester Neil Bolsky. The concussion picked us both up, slammed us back down, and covered him and I with debris. I looked over at Ski to see if he was all right. He had a rosary in one hand and was well along in his prayers. The untimely and frightening air raid did have some positive results for the Americans. A few errant bombs fell on the Japanese, breaking up their next assault. With a lull in the action, the Bunton patrol quickly withdrew. Arriving back at their lines after their raid... The Marine Raider Patrol was greeted by a scene of destruction. Tents, lean-tos, and other material were strewn throughout the area. Two were killed, 
and another ten men were wounded. There was Sergeant Harold Floater, sitting against a banyan tree, with his rifle between his legs. He was dead from the concussion of a bomb, remembered Guidon. We had flipped a coin to decide who would go on the patrol. Floater won, and elected to stay behind. As darkness descended on September 12th, a light mist started to fall. At 10 p.m., a Japanese cruiser and three destroyers commenced their bombardment of the ridge. Most of the shells screeched overhead and landed well beyond the Marines' perimeter. The enemy shelling lasted about 20 minutes. As soon as it ceased, the riflemen could see flares shoot skyward in front of their positions. Everyone readied himself. Edson had predicted correctly and also had called the turn almost to the hour. Major Yukichi Kokusho's 1st Battalion, 124th Infantry, spearheaded the enemy's initial blow. They struck the Marines' lines in front of Company C around the lagoon area. They were, in quotes, jabbering and shouting, end quote, in hopes of getting the raiders to fire upon them so they could discover the location of their automatic weapons. But the Marines had had too much experience against their adversaries by this time and remained silent. However, the Japanese breached the lines between the two platoons on the left flank. This forced the platoons to withdraw and attempt to link up with Company B on Hill 80. Likewise, the second platoon had a tough time of it. One machine gun crew fired hundreds of rounds, but the fanatical enemy still managed to overrun their position. Showing no mercy, the Japanese took ghoulish delight in chopping and hacking raider survivors with bayonets and swords. Witnessing groups of enemy soldiers swimming across the Lunga, it became apparent that the Japanese were attempting to envelop Company C's right flank. Word was quickly passed to have the remainder of the company fall back as well. Some of the raiders, however, failed to receive the orders to withdraw. One machine gun section from Company C and another from Company E allowed the enemy to walk as close as possible to their emplacements before letting loose with bursts of 30 caliber fire. As the Japanese infantrymen were being cut down, Marines tossed all the grenades they had to halt the advance. Night passed painfully slowly for the remainder of the Leathernecks. The screams of several captured raiders being tortured incensed those on the perimeter and heightened tension levels. One young rifleman turned to a grizzled veteran of World War I and asked if the fighting in Europe was as bad as this. The old sergeant whispered back, No, this is the worst situation I've been in. However, despite their early gains, the enemy attack soon fizzled with the approach of daybreak. Even though the Japanese had succeeded in dislodging Charlie Company, the reserve unit of the 5th Marines would have stopped Kokusho's men from breaking through. At first light on September 13th, P-40s and Grumman F-4F Wildcat fighters came swarming down on the Japanese. The strafing from the air and the howitzers of Don Pedro de Val's 11th Marines, combined with the mortars of the infantry units, made the enemy run for cover. Shrapnel from the American fire damaged Kawaguchi's shortwave radio. He was now cut off from Rabul and had no way of communicating his movements to 17th Army headquarters. Kawaguchi still had his brigade radio and urgently tried to make contact with his scattered battalions and consolidate his forces for a push on Henderson Field. Meanwhile, Edson was also preparing his next move. The raider commander wasted no time in organizing a counterattack against the Japanese to regain Company C's former position. Unfortunately, the attempt to drive out the enemy failed. That morning, Edson called his company commanders to his CP. As they squatted around him, he ate his cold hash out of a can and issued his orders. 
They were testing, just testing. They'll be back. I want all positions improved, all wire lines paralleled, a hot meal for the men. Today, dig, wire up tight, get some sleep. We'll all need it. As he stood, he continued, The nip will be back. I want to surprise him. Just before 1900 hours, Kawaguchi's hordes jumped off and struck B Company's lines on the open ground of the ridge. Under strength because of wounded men and illness in their ranks, the weary marines managed to merge with Company C. But Kawaguchi did not capitalize on the opening he had just made. Now Edson was in a quandary. Should he shift his reserve forces to bolster that portion of the line? Such a move would weaken his perimeter elsewhere. Fortunately, before Red Mike could make his decision, the screaming soldiers of Major Masayo Tamura's 2nd Battalion, 4th Infantry, rushed the center of his line. Soon a gap developed. Baker and Charlie companies of the parachutists were forced to withdraw. Captain Harry B. Torgerson, their commander, tried to organize them on Hill 123. With this withdrawal, Company B of the Raiders was isolated. Edson was in constant communication with his forward observers and called the artillery enclosure to provide a protective umbrella for his beleaguered Marines. This from a man who was there, John Milkey, 1st Raider Battalion. Taken from, in the rising sun, in their own words, World War II's Pacific veterans reveal the heart of combat by Patrick K. O'Donnell. About 300 Marines gripped the side of the small knoll, Hill 120. The horseshoe-shaped line was the last defensive position before Henderson Field. John Milkey recalls their last stand. We got together and were holding the position on the reverse slope of the ridge. At that time, it was a moment of panic. Around the base of the ridge, some paratroopers were retiring from their position because they knew we were there. They were calling out the password. One of the things you fear more than anything else is panic. We were cussing them out and giving them a real hard time. As they moved along, I felt sorry for them. I wasn't afraid. Fortunately, they were turned around by the officers, and many of these men returned to their holes and died there. Then they, the officers, said, fix bayonets and move up. We were going to cover the spot they were evacuating. I was the low man on the squad. I was an ammunition man, so I followed the men up the ridge. The squad leader set up his position, and the other ammunition man, who was a bit older than me, said, John, I'll take care of you. That wasn't the case. We left together, but I saw him for just a few moments, and we lost each other in the darkness, making it up the ridge. I got up there and had this rifle with no sling on it, and that was awkward. Most people were down in a prone position facing the ridge, throwing grenades as fast as they could throw them. As I came up there, I saw two men struggling. One was a big guy, and the other was a small guy. I tackled the small guy like a bag of newspapers. I threw him down the ridge, and he went tumbling off into the darkness. The guy that was on top was a paratrooper. He had been bayoneted by the Japanese, the small guy. We were bringing in cases of grenades. I spent the night bringing grenades to the men, throwing them. It was like a bad dream, men firing BAR, Springfield. There were cases of empty grenades all over the place. There weren't many of us left standing. By daylight, there were wounded and dead all over that ridge. Japanese who dove into marine foxholes to escape enveloping death were pitched out bodily, wrote Brigadier General Samuel B. Griffith in his book, The Battle for Guadalcanal. Dozens of dead and dying Marines, some with their arms and hands torn off, 
some with shattered legs, some with pierced chests, punctured abdomens, were dragged to a primitive dressing station where two Navy doctors cleaned and dressed wounds. An incredible nine Navy crosses were given to eight corpsmen and one doctor, Lieutenant Edward P. McLarney, for their outstanding courage under fire while treating wounded Marines. Suddenly, someone yelled, gas attack, gas attack. Panic ensued and some Marines began to withdraw. Major Ken Bailey, commanding officer of Company C of the Raiders, and a one-man supply section throughout the battle, intercepted the frightened infantryman. Screaming at the top of his lungs, he ordered the man back. It's a trick. There is no gas. Realizing he was correct, the riflemen quickly returned to their positions. Despite a severed head wound, despite a severe head wound, Bailey led his troops in hand-to-hand fighting for 10 hours. Bailey's presence on the battlefield was encouraging. Often called a Marine's Marine, he seemed to be everywhere during the intense combat. For his extraordinary heroism, Bailey would be awarded the Medal of Honor for his exemplary bravery on the ridge. Sadly, about a week later, the intrepid leader would be killed by enemy machine gun fire on the Matanikau River. He would receive his nation's highest accolade posthumously. Red Mike Edson was another individual who was seemingly everywhere on the ridge. One former raider would later comment, I was more afraid of him than the damn Japs. In his book, Bloody Ridge, The Battle That Saved Guadalcanal, historian Michael S. Smith wrote, Fearlessly standing erect in his command post with two fresh bullet holes in his shirt, Edson coolly and calmly directed the battle. His presence was needed because Edson knew how high the stakes were in this deadly game. Behind him, only a mile from where he stood, was Henderson Field. At a desperate point during the night, he was heard rallying. Raiders, parachuters, engineers, artillerymen, I don't give a damn who you are. You're all Marines. Come up this hill and fight now. By midnight, Company B had reached the relative safety of the knoll. The Raiders and parachuters formed a new defensive line in the shape of a horseshoe. Don Pedro Deval's 105mm guns kept up their firing, sometimes to within 200 yards of the Marine perimeter. At 2 a.m., a few red flares were seen hurtling skyward. Another attack was imminent. Suddenly, the blood-curting shouts of Banzai once again stabbed the night air. As the Japanese hit the left flank, Torgerson's paramarines met the onslaught and fought back savagely. You could shoot two, and then there'd be six more, remarked one leatherneck after the battle. Riflemen poured their fire into the assaulting enemy. Some Japanese soldiers were hit a half dozen times or more before falling. One enemy soldier, disemboweled by a shell, kept crawling forward to continue the attack. Clutching his exposed intestines, he managed to make his way to the Marine perimeter before dying from his wounds. Again from the story Into the Rising Sun, in their own words by Patrick K. O'Donnell. This from Tom Lyons, 1st Parachute Battalion. Outnumbered and running out of ammunition, Edson's 300 defenders faced their gravest threat when a large element of the Japanese 3rd Battalion, 124th Infantry, seemed poised to overrun the left side of the knoll. Edson ordered the Marine parachutists holding that side of the knoll to counterattack immediately, but the parachute battalion's commanding officer was nowhere to be found. He was relieved on the spot by Edson, and Captain Harry Torgerson was placed in command. Torgerson assembled two companies of parachutists and launched them in a desperate counterattack, saving the left flank of the line. After the Marines regained the line, the fighting became hand-to-hand as parachutist Tom Lyons 
vividly remembers. When they started raking us with a machine gun, that pissed me off, so I got up and crawled through the grass. The grass was about a foot and a half tall off the side of that hill, and I crawled up and around to the side of the machine gun. Bullets were flying everywhere, but the grass was high enough that it would partially hide you. I got almost to the machine gun before I was detected. They didn't see me until I stood up. There were so many people running around you couldn't shoot anybody. I stood up and threw a hand grenade, and just as I threw the grenade, they swung the gun around and ripped me up through the middle. I took several bullets, most of them went all the way through, and one missed my heart by about a half an inch. It knocked me ass over tin cup down the hill. The first one stung like hell, it really hurt, but the others after that didn't hurt at all. It seemed like I just left my body and I was floating up in the air looking down at everything going on. I saw a Jap come out and he stepped on my stomach and he stabbed me in the throat with his bayonet. It went through the side of my neck and into the ground behind me, but it didn't hurt. Jesse Youngdeer was coming up the trail with a box of hand grenades, and this Jap stepped off me and instead of finishing me off, he made a thrust at Youngdeer. Youngdeer stopped it with the box of hand grenades and they grabbed the Jap's rifle and was trying to wrestle it out of his hands. The Jap had stabbed him just above the knee. Another Marine ran up with his bayonet and he tried to stab the Jap, and he got confused and stabbed Young Deer right in the leg. My eyes were wide open. I could see everything that was going on. I thought I was seeing it from 50 feet above. When they started firing the 105s right in my area, I got some shrapnel on the right side of my chest. The bullets and shells were passing right over where I was floating up around there, and I was afraid they were going to hit me. Morning came, and they came around, and all the Japs were gone. There were dead Japs all around me. They were picking out the Marines and throwing all the bodies on a truck, and they cut all our dog tags off. They hauled us down to the cemetery in the coconut grove, and they dumped our bodies out. I ended up at the top of the pile. The driver came around close to the tailgate and thought I was coming alive, so he started running into the jungle screaming, and he didn't come back. An hour or so later, two corpsmen came by in a jeep, and they put me on a stretcher and hauled me to the hospital. They put me under a palm tree. From the stretcher, doctors told them to take this one out and bring in someone they could save. So I was there under a palm tree, and fresh troops started coming up the road. A ship came in with reinforcements, and an officer came over and said, Take all the people out of the field hospital and put them on my ship, and I'll take them back to Espiritu Santo. And he said, And that one, under the palm tree? Put him in my cabin and call the ship surgeon. He said, You're going to be on the bridge all the way back to Buttons. I was conscious but couldn't talk. My mouth was full of caked blood. I was wearing the same clothes for almost two months. The ship surgeon got my lung uncollapsed and he pumped all the blood out of it and had me all cleaned up. After we made port, they put me on a plane to New Zealand. My mother got a check from my insurance saying I was dead the same day she got a letter from me written by a nurse at a hospital in New Zealand. Meanwhile, back on Edson's Ridge, a Japanese mortar attack slammed shells into both sides of the ridge severing the phone lines to the Division CP. A forward observer raced back to the Marines' FDC, the Fire Direction Center, and instructed the artillerymen to drop it five and walk it back and forth across the ridge. After this was done, the guns of the 5th Battalion, 11th Marines, belched round after round, crisscrossing their shells from left to right and back again in front of the Marine perimeter. The gunners were able to rain a curtain of steel down upon the assaulting enemy soldiers. Kawaguchi's men were cut to pieces. With the Japanese driven back, Edson quickly ordered Torgerson's Baker and Charlie companies to push forward 
and link up with Able Company. Forming a skirmish line, the parachuters slowly walk forward firing their Riesley machine guns and hurling grenades. Before long, the Leathernecks had rejoined their fellow riflemen and reestablished that section of the line. By 0400, Edson's men were nearly spent. He radioed Thomas and requested reinforcements. Soon, elements of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, began to filter into the line, relieving the weary raiders and parachutists. The battle for the ridge was winding down as dawn approached. Pockets of stiff Japanese resistance still remained, however. Captain Dale Brannan's U.S. Army Corps pilots swung into action. They laced the jungle area around the ridge with 30 and 50 caliber machine gun fire. The aircraft also unleashed torrents of 20mm cannon rounds, annihilating the retreating enemy troops. Kawaguchi had no choice but to break off the attack and retreat. He left behind him a blood-stained ridge littered with corpses, wrote Samuel Griffith. In the grotesque attitudes of those who meet sudden and violent death lay the twisted bodies of more than 500 men who had died gloriously for their emperor. With heads lolling and mouths agape, the inscrutable dead stared with glazed and sightless eyes at the morning sun. Edson's marines moved off the ridge on September 14th and bivouacked in Kokum for a much-deserved rest. However, the cost of victory wasn't cheap. The 1st Raider Battalion had lost 135 men. The 1st Parachute Battalion, another 128. Of this, 59 Marines were dead or missing in action. Of the 377 Paramarines who had landed August 7th on Guadalcanal, approximately 86 remained. The Raiders had gone ashore with 750 in their ranks, and they had sustained 234 killed, wounded, or missing. As a result of their tremendous losses, the parachuters left Guadalcanal on September 18th, but the raiders remained. Kawaguchi's retreating soldiers also had an arduous task in front of them, making it through the hellish jungle to the relative safety of Taivu Point. With most of their food gone, the remnants of the brigade had to cross the Lunga River in the thick growth near the sharp slopes of Mount Austin. Men ate beetle nuts, tree bark, and weeds and drank filthy water from stagnant puddles in order to survive. First, the heavier weapons were discarded. Soon after, the lighter weapons, packs, and other gear were also abandoned. Maggots began to fester in their open wounds, and many of the more seriously injured did not survive the grueling march. After nearly a week, the once-proud Kawaguchi detachment, now reduced to a mere tattered and disillusioned ragtag group, finally arrived at the rear area near Point Cruz. There were numerous heroes in the battle for the ridge. Their deeds could never be underestimated. However, one figure stands out above all, Colonel Red Mike Edson. His uncanny ability to deduce where the enemy would stage its massive assault to seize Henderson Field was critical. After the Battle of Edson's Ridge, it was time to concentrate on the remainder of the Japanese forces gathered along the Mataniku River. In addition to Point Cruz, the Matanikau River area included the village of Kokumbuna, as well as a series of ridges and ravines stretching in from the coast. Beginning September 23rd, three companies of the 7th U.S. Marines attacked a large group of Japanese Army forces on the Mataniku and soon found themselves surrounded, the only means of escape being the way they had arrived, by water, commanded by Marine Lieutenant Colonel Lewis B. Chesty Puller. The landing craft that had delivered them was under the command of young Coast Guardsman Douglas Monroe and consisted of ten personnel landing craft, supported by the destroyer USS Monson, 
which laid down a covering barrage for the 500 Marines. The Marines had originally planned to land west of the river, drive out the Japanese, and establish a patrol base on the west side of the Matanikau. At about 1.50 p.m., approximately the same time they reached the ridge, their gunfire support was disrupted by a Japanese bombing raid. The USS Monson had to withdraw to avoid 17 high-level Japanese bombers. Unfortunately, this occurred at the same time that the Marines were struck by an overwhelming Japanese force west of the river. This situation deteriorated when Major Rogers was killed and one of the company commanders was wounded. After the Marines landed, Monroe and the Coast Guard boats had returned to Lunga Point Base. A single LCP remained behind to take off the immediate wounded. Coast Guard Petty Officer Ray Evans and Navy Coxswain Samuel B. Roberts manned the craft. They kept the craft extremely close to the beach to take off the wounded as quickly as possible. The Japanese, meanwhile, had worked behind the Marines, and without warning a machine gun burst hit the LCP, parting the rudder cable and damaging the boat's controls. After jury-rigging the rudder, Roberts was struck by enemy fire, and Evans managed to jam the controls to full ahead and sped back to Lunga Point Base. As Evans arrived at the Lunga Point Base, word arrived that the Marines were in trouble, and were being driven back toward the beach. Their immediate plight had not been known. The bombing raid had driven Monson out of range to visually communicate with the shore. Furthermore, the three companies of Marines had failed to take a radio and were unable to convey their predicament. Using undershirts, they spelled out the word HELP on a ridge not far from the beach. Second Lieutenant Dale Leslie in a Douglas SBD spotted the message and passed it by radio to another Marine unit. At 4 p.m., Lieutenant Colonel Puller, realizing that his men were isolated, ran down to the beach, took the waiting craft out to the USS Monson, and directed personally the covering fire for the Marines who were desperately trying to reach the beach. The directed fire from the USS Monson opened up the one path of escape that they had, and the desperate Marines were able to reach the beach. The landing craft, which had been readied at Lunga Point Base, returned, virtually the same boats that had put the Marines on the beach had returned to extract them. Douglas Monroe, who had taken charge of the original landing, volunteered to lead the boats back to the beach. None of these boats were heavily armed or well protected. For instance, Monroe's Higgins boat had a plywood hull. It was slow, vulnerable to small arms fire, and was armed with only two air-cooled 30 caliber Lewis machine guns. <clears throat> As Monroe led the boats ashore, the Japanese fired on the small craft from Point Cruz, from the ridges abandoned by the Marines and from positions east of the beach. This intense fire from three strong interlocking positions disrupted the landing and caused a number of casualties among the virtually defenseless crews in the boats. Despite the intense fire, Monroe led the boats ashore, reaching the shore in waves. Monroe and Petty Officer Raymond Evans provided covering fire from an exposed position on the beach. As the Marines re-embarked, the Japanese pressed toward the beach, making the withdrawal more dangerous with each second. The USS Munson and Leslie's Dauntless Dive Bomber provided additional cover for the withdrawing Marines. The Marines arrived on the beach to embark on the landing craft while the Japanese kept up a murderous fire from the ridges about 500 yards from the beach, the same ridge that had spotted the landing craft at the beginning of this episode. Monroe, seeing the dangerous situation, maneuvered his boat between the enemy and those withdrawing to protect the remnants of the battalion. Three entire companies of Marines including 25 wounded, managed to escape. 
With all the Marines safely in the small craft, Monroe and Evans steered their LCP offshore. As they passed toward Point Cruz, they noticed an LCT full of Marines grounded on the beach. Monroe steered his craft and directed another tank lighter to pull it off. Twenty minutes later, the craft was free and heading to sea. Before they could get far enough from shore, the Japanese set up a machine gun and began firing at the boats. Evans saw the fire and shouted a warning to Monroe. The roar of the boat's engine, however, prevented Monroe from hearing, and a single bullet hit him at the base of the skull. Petty Officer Monroe died before reaching the operating base, but due to his extraordinary heroism, outstanding leadership, and gallantry, Coast Guardsman Monroe posthumously received the Medal of Honor. The Coast Guard continued to provide valuable service in all theaters of the war. The Coast Guard's motto, Semper Paratus, provided inspiration and guided other men to perform heroic acts, demonstrating that the Coast Guard was indeed always ready. In a second action two weeks later, the Marines successfully crossed the Matanakau River and attacked the newly arrived Japanese forces, inflicting heavy losses, forcing the Japanese to retreat from their defensive base at the Matanakau and hindering Japanese preparations for their planned major offensive on Henderson Field in October. Between September 26th and October 9th, the fighting was fierce as the Marine 3rd Company survived a surprise night ambush that created a hellish three-hour hand-to-hand struggle with knives and bayonets that left 59 Japanese and 12 Marines dead, with scores wounded. On October 9th, a Marine offensive west of the Matanaku trapped the Japanese 4th Infantry Regiment in a ravine, killing 700 Japanese at the cost of 65 Marine lives. This left the Japanese high command with the last option of sending most of their troops on a long march inland in a last-ditch effort to retake Henderson Field. But the march so exhausted the Japanese infantry that the Battle of Henderson Field, which took place from October 23rd through the 26th, although viciously fought, was a loss that cemented Allied victory at Guadalcanal. In November of 1942, when the Japanese army gave up hope of retaking Guadalcanal, and the Japanese Navy ceased trying to send reinforcements. The bloodied 1st Marine Division was withdrawn. The U.S. Army 164th and the 2nd Marines arrived, and the fighting continued until February. Very few Japanese surrendered, preferring to fight to the death, despite knowing that reinforcements were no longer coming. What did Guadalcanal mean in the scope of war overall? When the Guadalcanal campaign began, it was the first land offensive fought by the United States against any Axis power. It continued to be the only land offensive by the U.S. until the major Allied invasion of North Africa in November of 1942. Under the Europe First Doctrine then practiced by Allied leadership, materials needed by the forces in the Guadalcanal area were assigned only grudgingly, and to those involved it was dubbed Operation Shoestring. To add to this, the naval battle of Salvo, a disaster for the Allies, and the first of five destructive naval engagements, four of them fought at night, where the Japanese had superiority, had placed some doubt in the minds of leadership as to when and how much to commit in that theater. The American public was far more angry about the Japanese atrocities that had taken place up to that time, however, and wanted a victory. The news of German atrocities had been, with the exception of the bombing of Britain, largely kept out of the news, but the Japanese rape and murder of villagers, missionaries, nuns, and priests on islands including Guadalcanal, Wake, Guam, the Philippines, and others 
had made headlines. One example being Admiral Halsey's memo to Australian authorities that somehow made it to Collier's magazine, mentioning his anger over Japanese atrocities on Guadalcanal, including the 48-hour rape of nuns before they cut their throats at a convent near Cape Esperance, and the torture of U.S. Marines by abdominal vivisection. And there was much that Halsey and the others weren't aware of until after the war, including torture and experimentation centers, centers operated by the Japanese secret police, carrying on activities that would make the German SS look like pikers. Knowing the accusations are coming as a result of this last paragraph, all I can tell you is to look it up. It's documented as Japanese war crimes. You can also check Japanese secret police World War II. And yes, the Allies were brutal as well. But you won't find nearly as many acts of brutality against innocent missionaries, nuns, surrendered soldiers, and civilians as the Japanese and Germans in the late 30s and early 40s managed to compile. For reading or watching, we can recommend the following books and movies as being accurate. Guadalcanal Diary by combat reporter Richard Tregascus and the movie by the same name that followed the book. James Jones, The Thin Red Line, was good and became a movie twice, the first time in 1964 and the second in 1998, remade by Terrence Malick. These covered much of the fighting late in the campaign, after the Battle of Edson's Ridge, fighting which we only covered briefly here, and fighting in which many heroes, like Medal of Honor winner John Bassalone, were involved. In November, Admiral Halsey committed the new battleships Washington and South Dakota to the defense of Guadalcanal in an effort to completely stem the flow of men and supplies to the Japanese, and after three nights of what can only be described as epic fireworks in the sound, American aircraft caught up with the Japanese transport fleet in daylight, sinking or crippling dozens of ships and cutting off the Japanese completely. Although we concentrate on the land offensive in this episode, had it not been for the actions of our naval and air forces, a win at Guadalcanal would not have been possible. On December 7, 1942, the Americans began an all-out offensive on the island, beginning a series of attacks, such as the charge up Mount Austin, which would make for great scenes in the 1998 movie, The Thin Red Line. The only criticism is that in the movies, the Japanese soldiers are too well-fed, the reality being that most were half-starved and weighed under 100 pounds, looking more like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings than fit soldiers, but still able to pull a trigger or lob a hand grenade. As to the accuracy of HBO's The Pacific, it admittedly is neither a documentary nor a completely accurate portrayal but it is a very good historical drama using the accounts and actions of at least two real heroes, John Bassalone and Robert Leckie. You can begin your search at www.hbo.com forward slash the-pacific. HBO, along with Hanks and Spielberg, deserve a lot of credit for bringing the horrors of war to the screen. In order that we fully appreciate the sacrifices made by those who took on the responsibility of fighting for our country, what effect war has on those who survive it, and the destruction that war causes, human and otherwise. What they can't show us is why mankind will always be divided between those who want to dominate others and take their land away, killing or subjugating all those who resist, and those who just want to live in peace. I'll give you an example. In 1939, when Germany and Russia attacked Poland for the purpose of dividing up their land and subjugating their people, the United States, wanting to live in peace, stood by and watched. 
as German tanks swept over Europe, taking half of France, rounding up millions of Jews and Slavs, and sending them to prison camps, and then bombing innocent civilians in England relentlessly, destroying entire cities. The Americans just wanting to live in peace, and believing that they could remain isolated geographically from the world's problems, stood by and watched. As Japan invaded China in 1937 and began a huge military buildup throughout the Pacific, the United States, wanting peace, just watched. Until the Japanese bombed the American fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. And that was the day that changed the war. I constantly hear that America has been the aggressor around the world, and it makes me sad when I hear it. How many Americans have died on foreign soil fighting for someone else's freedom? They've left more white grave markers than you or I can count, and they occupy more unsung graves at the bottom of the world's oceans than you can count. This host gets thoroughly irritated when I hear a select few of our leaders bash their own country, painting it as a powerful aggressor, responsible for all the problems of the world, showing little appreciation for American sacrifice or the freedom that our military might has helped to preserve around the world. Movies, books, and podcasts like this one can tell the stories, but never communicate the courage it took to stand firm in a bonsai battle, or in the cockpit of a dive bomber or torpedo bomber, or in a lightly armed Coast Guard craft trying to pick up Marines. The next time you watch an Olympic event, take special care to watch the procession of flags entering the arena, and count the number of flags you see that are carried by free countries, some large some just small islands, that owe their free existence in part or in full to the fact that Americans fought there or have been protecting them by treaties. America contributed greatly to Germany's loss in World War II, but we don't occupy them. The Russians took their half, however, and occupied it for nearly 50 years, doing pretty much the same thing to Poland. Check out our episodes titled The Katyn Massacre, K-A-T-Y-N, for the story of Poland during World War II and beyond. We defeated Japan, but we didn't occupy it, other than to install martial law, for their safety and ours while they rebuilt. Last time I checked, they were a free country and a close ally. This episode might be an American story, but it is dedicated to all men and women of all nationalities who have made and continue to make a difference to protect peace and freedom from dictators and tyrants. At all costs. God bless all of you. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network, which includes our other two shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road. We invite you to subscribe to our shows. It's free, and we've placed links for Apple and Android users in our show notes. You can also always find us at our home site, www.1001storiespodcast.com Reviews are always welcome at Apple Podcasts, and we appreciate your sharing our show with others, especially at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes and Twitter, the address being at 1001podcast. Most of all, we want to thank you for being a part of 1001 and supporting our sponsors and sending us your ideas at 1001storiespodcast.com at gmail.com. Producing this show, researching our stories, and sharing them with you is an adventure I never would have dreamed I'd be doing. But here we are, 
and I still have 800 more stories to tell. I'll make a deal with you. If you keep sending reviews and sharing our show with friends, I'll keep producing 1001 podcasts. I still have quite a few to go before we reach 1001. And here's a few of those reviews to share with you. Here's one from Sweden from Static 66. This is one of the best history, myths, and legends podcasts from the USA. Another one by O. Griffin in the USA. Love your show. It's all in the title. Great content each time. Well-researched and entertaining. I always learn something new. Keep up the great work. And this is from the USA from Twill. I greatly enjoy the old-time stories, even the ones I've heard before. I like the take on them. And this one's from the UK. I discovered your podcast the other day because it was mentioned in the podcast study survey, and it sounded interesting. I've just listened to the El Fago episode as my first episode and found it thoroughly entertaining. I'll also be checking out 1001 Classic Short Stories. And this one, great podcast. Thank you for your hard work. Thank you, and thanks for listening.